the sermon time with a statement similar to this. Would you open your Bibles, please? I've never meant that more sincerely than I do this morning. It is so very important that you read what you hear today because of the nature of the message. I want you to turn in your Bible to Psalm number 22. Psalm number 22. And oh, how I love the Psalms. It is my food. It is my milk. It is my strength. It is my encouragement. The book of Psalms. Loaded daily with benefits. Psalm number 22. The reading, the reading is a little lengthy. But how precious it is. Beginning with verse number 1. And reading down through verse number 21. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots for my vesture. 
But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the bones or the horns of the unicorn. I will declare thy name, and it takes up at that particular point. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I want to speak this morning on the subject of the death of the Messiah. The death of the Messiah. When is the last time you surveyed the cross on which the Prince of Glory died? I'm serious. When is the last time you gave careful consideration to the cross of death, surveying that cross of death on which the Savior died? Psalm 22 and 23 and 24 should be studied together. We're going to separate them a week apart. Lord willing, next Sunday morning, the Lord willing, I'll be preaching on the 23rd Psalm. The Sunday after that, I'll be preaching on the kingdom of Christ. But today, on the death of Christ. These three Psalms, unlike any of the rest, are messianic in content. By messianic, we mean that God promised a Messiah when Adam and Eve fell in the garden and he told the devil about this coming Messiah. And throughout the Old Testament, the subject of the Messiah was on the hearts and on the lips of God's people. And finally he came in the New Testament and was declared to be the Son of God. Even though these verses were written a thousand years before the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. They pinpoint and in detail describe the death of Christ in a way and in a fashion that there's no other place in the Bible that does that. It mentions the death over and over again, but it does not go into detail about the death of Christ Psalm 22 portrays the death of Christ. Psalm 23 prophesies the priesthood of Christ. The Lord is my shepherd. And Psalm 24 sets forth the kingdom of Christ. It is in Psalm 22 that we should study this session this morning. It's divided into two parts. Verses 1 through 21 talk about the death of Christ. But it picks up and accelerates in speed when you get to verse 22 through 31. It talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This psalm, Psalm 22, contains 33 distinct prophecies that were fulfilled in the body of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Number one. 
We have here a most profound question beginning this psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There are many profound questions in the Bible. If you study your Bible, you're going to run across sometimes a question that's raised from various people over various situations. There was a time when Job asked an important question. He said, if a man die, shall he live again? And that question has been asked down through human history. If a man die, shall he live again? That's an important question. Bildad, an enemy who claimed to be a friend of Job, but really was an enemy, he raised this question, how can a man be justified with God? How in the world can a man stand before a holy God and God not incite him for breaking his law? How can he be justified with God? The Philippian jailer raised a very important question. What must I do to be saved? Men in the religious world have come across with so many different things that people have to do. It's a very important thing. What must I do to be saved? And Simon Peter, he raised this question. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear. Let's look at this question in verse 1 of our text. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We raise a question to explain the question. Who asked it? Who is speaking here? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was not King David. King David had to go through some pretty difficult trials. But what you read in this psalm never happened to David. It was and could not be any believer. No Christian could ever pray this prayer. Why? Because in Hebrews 13, 5, the Lord said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. No unbeliever or sinner could ever ask this question because to forsake means to leave. And how can you leave somebody if you were never with them to start off with? In Ephesians 2.12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens of the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That's the condition of every unbeliever. They're without God in this world. So how can they say, God, why have you forsaken me? They never were with him. The answer is to the question, it could only be the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need not turn to it, but in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Another question. Where was the question asked? Where was this question fulfilled by Christ 
Where was it asked? It was not in the wilderness temptations. But our Lord was sorely tempted of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Satan presented everything in the world to get the Lord Jesus to resign himself to doing the will of God. But that's not where he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Neither was it in Gethsemane when he prayed not my will, thine be done. But it happened on a cross outside of Jerusalem. There was a thief pinned to one cross, another thief on the other side, crucified to another cross, and in the middle hung Jesus Christ who said, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? What did the question mean? When you read that in your Bible, and folk, listen, I want to confess something to you that I think all of us are guilty at one time or another. How many times is it possible as you're reading along the Scripture and you try to rush it because you've got other things to do? And you don't really pay attention to what it says. If it were talking about your next door neighbor, you'd be horrified. If it were talking about someone you loved and cared for, it would be the most awful thing you've ever heard in your life. But we talk about, well, you know, Jesus died on the cross. Ah, what does that mean? What does it mean to be forsaken of God? What is the answer to that? It means, number one, that the Father refused to help the Son. He refused to help the Son. I don't suppose I know many dads who've ever come to the place where they refuse to help their kids. That some way, somehow or another, you do the best you can as a mom and a dad, and if your son were to call on you for help... You'd drop what you were doing to go be with him and help him as much as possible. But that's what the word forsaken means. The father refused to help the son. In the 11th verse, it says this, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. It also means the father hid his face from the son and refused to look on him. It is recorded in the book of Habakkuk 1.13. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. God Almighty is so holy that he cannot look on iniquity. It is not so much that he cannot see iniquity being committed, but he does not look on iniquity with any pleasure whatsoever because he's a holy God. He cannot. And yet, my dear friends, it's involved in this word forsaken. The father abandoned and left the son. That word forsaken in verse number one. Why hast thou forsaken me? The word means to turn loose of and to leave. The father led his son into that darkness and then turned him 
loose. His cry is described as groaning day and night. Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring in the King James Version? It is a Greek word. Here it is a Hebrew word that means groanings. Groanings. He's described as a roaring day and night. He cried out like an animal in pain in the wilderness. He cried out before the sun disappeared and after the sun disappeared. The sun refused to shine on that event. Not only is it a profound question, why hast thou forsaken me? But it speaks of a profound death. First of all, there is a deserving death mentioned in verse 3 and verse number 6. In verse number 3, that one who is praying this prayer, do not forsake me, recognizes that God is holy. Thou art holy. And verse number 6, he recognizes that he is less than holy. He is a worm. Follow this carefully. When the Lord Jesus became sin for us, He deserved to die. You say, well, I I would never say that. That would be blasphemy that, that Christ deserved. He deserved to die when He became sin for us. Because all sinners... Deserve to die. It does not mean that he was guilty of committing any sin, but he became sin for us. And when he did, God forsook him. This word worm here, where the Lord in the scripture is speaking prophetically of something that's going to happen and did happen on the cross of Calvary. The worm here is not a worm like a maggot, but rather a crimson worm from which was made red dye for the marketplaces. When stepped on that worm, the blood of the worm was scarlet red. When Christ died on the cross of Calvary, he emitted precious blood while hanging on the cross. His head was bleeding. His face was bleeding. His back was bleeding. His hands were bleeding. His feet were bleeding. And his side was bleeding. But moreover, his heart was bleeding. Isaac Watts spoke a great truth when he wrote the hymn we sing in this church, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. One of the stanzas says this, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose? 
so rich a crown when I survey when I examine this in detail when I look up very references of certain things that are stated in this verse that are stated in other verses to help amplify what really he went through on the, am I surveying it yes you are it's not enough for us just to say I believe Jesus died. No, my dear friends, goes a little bit deeper than that. It was a deserving death. It was a certain death. Verse number 8 makes this statement. He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, seeing he, uh, pardon me, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. In this verse, it's not saying that Christ trusted the Father to deliver him from this death. He's saying that it was stated by his accusers. He trusted his Father and for the Father's will to be done as he would die. And it was God's will that Jesus die. I repeat that. It was God's will for Jesus to die. It could not be avoided and it could not be postponed. The hour had come. Not only was it a certain death, it was a lonely death. Look at verse number 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. And there's none to help. A lonely death. This does not mean that Christ was alone when he died. We know that the mount was covered with spectators. And even thief on either side of him. His enemies were present. He calls them bulls of Bashan. He was encompassed by the bulls of Bashan. But you know what? All the disciples left him. All of the disciples left him. Guess who was there? His mother. She never left him. Satan was present there. He had dogged his heels from the time he was born of the Virgin Mary. And tried everything imaginable in a diabolical scheme to get the Son of God to sin. And he failed and failed and failed. Satan was there. It says in verse number 13, They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. Peter had a little bit to say about the devil, didn't he? He said, be sober in 1 Peter 5, 8. Be vigilant because your adversary the devil is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may destroy. It was a lonely death. It was a painful death. I cannot imagine. I do not believe there's a human being on the face of this earth who can adequately describe the physical and spiritual sufferings of our Lord as he hung on the cross of Calvary. The Bible gives us a pretty good picture here. 
In verse number 14, his bones were jerked out of joint. Verse 14 says, I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted in the midst of my bowels. How many times have you ever been engaged in physical activity and maybe walking along or running along and you stepped on a rock or something and you turned your ankle and the bone pulled out a little bit and it slipped right back in, but you hobbled on it for the next 30 days. Pain. His bones were... You see, when he hung on the cross, they nailed him to that cross. Then they lifted the cross up and moved it over to a previously dug hole in the ground. And when they lined up the bottom of the cross with the top of the hole, they turned it loose. And it hit the bottom. And when it did, his bones were jerked out of joint. Not only that, but the loss of blood and the internal bleeding that he was experiencing provided extreme thirst. Did he not say in Matthew, I thirst? When he hung on the cross, I thirst. Look at verse number 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. For thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Dear friends, that's extreme dehydration. John nineteen twenty eight. he said, I thirst. Here in Psalm, he said, it was poured out. It melted. I dried up. I began to taste of the dust of death. And then there was the awful, awful pain of the crucifixion. In verse number 16, the dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And We do not have the words to express what that must have been like for our blessed Lord. Why? Because he became sin for us. And when he became sin for us, God punished him like a sinner. It was a shameful death. Look at verses 17 and 18. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots for my vesture. They stripped him and some commentaries, and I'm more inclined to believe that they're right than those who say he may have had a loincloth on. They stripped him of his clothes. He hung naked on that cross for every eye to look on him and to make jokes about him while he died. You know, I was reading this past week from Genesis. Did you know nakedness was the first result of sin in the Garden of Eden. After Adam had sinned, God paid him a visit and said, Adam, where are you? He said, I was afraid I hid 
myself. I was naked and I hid myself. I tell you how far we've come in this business of depravity. We're no longer desirous to hide when we're naked. We like to display it. Amen. But our Lord hung there in that shameful position. I want you to go with me to verse number 22. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. If you'll notice, there's a tremendous change in the the atmosphere of verses 1 down through 21. It changes with verse 22 and doesn't conclude until verse 31. Verses 1 through 21 speak of his crucifixion, but beginning with verse 22, it speaks of his resurrection. The psalm makes a profound change from sadness to gladness. He is not here. He's risen. The psalm began with a cry of despair. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then it starts going down, which we've done this morning, by taking a little time to go into these details. It goes down and down and down for 21 agonizing verses. However, beginning with verse 22, it begins to rise up. And it goes up and up and up and climaxes with a triumphant shout. Verse 22, what does it say? I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. When a loved one dies, we leave them in the grave with disappointment and sorrow. The end has come, but not for our Lord. He arose from the dead and went straight for the apostles with joy An unbelievable proof. Whereabouts did he go? He went to the congregation. Hey, that's the church. Did you know that the Lord Jesus established a church before he ever died on the cross of Calvary? And the first members of that church were the apostles of Jesus Christ. He went to the church. He's still meeting with his church today where two or three are gathered together in my name. There will I be in their midst. Look at verse number 24. The hope continues to build. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard When did the father hear? After three days and three nights, the grave belched up the body of the Son of God. He walked out of that tomb alive. God heard the voice of his son. Not on the cross, but when he paid the price for our redemption, God heard him at the resurrection. 
No longer was it turning his head from him and the sun turning everything dark as he died on the cross. But the father saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Verses 26 through 28, very helpful. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. Now this is because of the resurrection. If you have a dead Savior, you have no hope. But if you have a living Lord, you have every hope in the world. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek Him. Your heart (laughs) shall live forever. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord and all the kindreds of the nation shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations. The same resurrected Lord shall come again as king of kings and Lord of lords and all of God's elect will worship him. The closing verses 30 and 31. A seed shall serve him. You need to unscore that. When he comes the second time, a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. The satisfaction and the the effectuality of the atonement of Jesus Christ, a seed shall serve. The shalls in the Bible are so important, it means it's going to happen. They shall serve him. Not try to serve him. They shall serve him. It's a statement of certainty. Listen, if Christ did not secure the salvation of anybody when he died, but only made it possible if they wanted to be saved, then it is possible he would have no seed. However, the seed is certain. John 6, verse number 37. I don't want to miss not so much as a letter of it. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. The gospel being preached today will reach the seed of those born in time. For God has a people, and they will come. If you're a Christian today, it is because somewhere in the past, you became convicted of your sins, and you began to realize who Jesus Christ was, and you pled the mercy of God, and God was faithful to hear because you were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. The seed is certain. The seed is certain. God has a people. They will come. You say, well, Brother Kozar, why didn't you give an invitation? I try to give an invitation every time I stand and preach. Come to Christ. 
repent of sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus. That's the invitation. It's not 15 stanzas of almost persuaded and just as I am. And you walk out because you got thirsty and want to drink a water. God Almighty through the Holy Spirit ever gets hold of you. My dear friend, you won't need the preacher to give you an invitation. You'll say, make way. I need to come to Christ. I need to come to Christ. Has that ever happened to you? Has that ever occurred? Ever occurred to you in your life that you became all of a sudden so completely miserable with yourself and you fell in love with the Prince of Glory? And you came to him, and you've been glad ever since. It's called the joy of the Lord. I love the last four words. That he hath done this. You find that in verse 31. They shall come and declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. The plan of salvation is God's plan. And it involved God's Son who paid God's price for sinners on the cross of Calvary. He died for the sins of His elect and they became the chosen seed of God Almighty. Let me close by sharing in Isaiah 53 just two verses, 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many not everybody but many for he shall bear their iniquities whatever you read in your bible about what happened to Christ on the cross of Calvary would have happened to you had God not had mercy on you and bestowed his grace upon you. What a Savior we have in the Lord. And may we never take his death lightly. It was essential. It was necessary. And the Father would say at the resurrection, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let's stand please for prayer. Our